0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A
1: young girl sits on the steps of a dirty stoop, clutching a teddy bear in her arms. As the camera slowly zooms in, her blue eyes stare sadly at the viewer and a voice starts to speak in German. She lives with little access to nutritious food, the narrator says. 49 million Americans are living with food insecurity, it goes on. America needs Germany's help now. The video went viral last year, Americans incredulous that things were so bad at home that Germans saw them as charity cases. In fact, it was a stunt launched in 2015 by a US food poverty campaign that had found new life on social media. But the fake advert had a real message. Among industrialised nations, America has consistently had one of the worst child poverty rates. I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... How did America find the answer to its child poverty problem and then abandon it? There's not much mystery as to why the US has long had one of the highest rates of child poverty in the rich world. America's government spends little on children in comparison to its peers. Last year, it seemed like politicians had found the solution, spend more. The expanded child tax credit lifted around 3.7 million children out of poverty, according to scholars at Columbia University. But when the legislation expired at the end of 2021, they found that child poverty rates shot back up. Could this successful policy return? With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloon. Idris, it's been a big week. Yes,
2: I got married this weekend. Uh, So it's been a real whirlwind. We had a three, four day, really, uh, affair in Kentucky, which is where I grew up. Um, You know, Pakistani weddings uh, go pretty hard. So we are back in D.C. now and we are fairly exhausted.
3: I have to say, it's really too bad that we are in audio form because the pictures from the wedding are absolutely incredible. I feel like we should make this into a TV show just so we can show pictures of Idris' wedding.
2: Yeah. I, I just um, asked my family group chat for the photos they took because we took none. And my mom just, just sent 30 pictures of Alice, my wife now, and, and like none of me. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I just like make cameos occasionally. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know,
1: it's it good. <laughs> Uh, You have to get used to that. Well, we're obviously delighted for you guys. The the sound you hear now is the sound of hearts breaking all over Kentucky and and 49 other states. (laughs) Um, Let's switch gear. Idris, this is an awkward turn in the podcast, but you have been reporting on poverty, in particular child poverty in America, for as long as we've been working together. Um, You wrote a special report on poverty in America a few years ago. It's an area of particular interest to you. And we thought that this would be a great time to do a podcast on child poverty in America, because America recently undertook this gigantic experiment with introducing a brand new child tax credit, which was incredibly effective, uh, and then withdrawing it And so we wanted to get the lessons of this, really. You've written about this subject in this week's Economist, and one of the people you talked to for that piece was Senator Michael Bennett. So so why did you go talk to Senator Bennett?
2: America just went on a big natural experiment with child allowances. Um, After Joe Biden became president, he signed in March 2021 the American Rescue Plan, which included... Uh, For the first time ever, monthly payments of child allowances. And those started in July and they went on for about six months. And then they stopped. And the plans to continue them uh, floundered along with the rest of the president's agenda, which he had packed into a, a piece of legislation called Build Back Better. And to make sense of that experiment, I wanted to talk to Michael Bennett. He's a Democratic senator from Colorado who has been championing this sort of policy for many years, um, well before uh, it became reality once COVID struck and the president signed the American Rescue Plan.
1: Okay, got it. So let's now listen to that interview with Senator Bennett. Before we do that, I should note that Senator Bennett's brother, James, is a dear colleague of ours at The Economist. We're really lucky to have him working with us. He wasn't involved in the writing or editing of this story. And actually, Idris, your admiration for Senator Bennett's policies, you know, predates uh, his brother coming to work with us. So just wanted to make that point for the sake of propriety.
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and so Senator Bennett spoke to me from his slightly echoey office in D.C. And we started out by talking about why child poverty is such a big issue uh, in a country as rich as
4: America. I would say that we have had such a high rate of poverty because we've essentially treated America's children like they're someone else's children. I think that we have had a set of policies that have imagined that in our capitalist economy, that it somehow naturally results in there being upward mobility. And, and the reality for the last 50 years has been quite different from that. We have some of the lowest economic mobility of any country in the industrialized world. And the people that pay the highest price for that are kids who, through no fault of their own are born to families at the bottom of that economic ladder. And several years ago, I mean, a number of years ago, a father-son team, Bill and David Harris from New York, came to see me and said, we think we have an elegant solution to the issues that you're trying to work on. And that was what became the enhanced child tax credit. And when you proposed it, um,
2: I think the idea was almost thought of as as utopian. How, How did we get from there to what happened in the American Rescue Plan where, you know, it kind of became reality. I think
4: what happened was COVID happened. I hate to say it. I wish that that we, we could have simply looked at the fact that we were 38 out of 41 industrialized countries in terms of the depth of our childhood poverty. I wish that we could have understood that the poorest people in America are our kids and that we have a tool that we could use to fix that. And that would have been enough, but it wasn't enough. And you're right, a lot of people thought this was... Craziness. I mean, I ran a totally unnoticed campaign for president on this idea. You know, I thought it was a, a policy that would have far greater effect on our country than many of the policies that were articulated in that Democratic primary. Uh, I didn't get any traction there, but I. But I think what happened was COVID came, and people understood just how rough it had been on working people and. This turned out, again, to be an elegant solution to the problem. And by then, we had gotten signed up the vast majority of Democrats in the Senate and Democrats in the House. And Joe Biden, actually, by the end of his presidential campaign, was running on it as well. And so that, with a little bit of work, obviously, we were able to get it into the American Rescue Plan.
2: And once I was in effect and, and, you know, the monthly payments started of 300 a month for young kids and 250 a month for, for older kids, we saw for a period of six months what the policy looked like in practice, and did it live up to the expectations
4: that you had for it? It did. I think it was a huge success. And by the way, just months before the, the first monthly payment, there were a lot of people around here saying, you're never going to get the IRS to make monthly payments. It'll never work. This will be a disaster. It wasn't a disaster. They missed you know, some of the poorest people at the beginning that are hardest to reach. We always knew that was going to be an issue. I set up folks all over my state to try to go out and find the poorest people to get them signed on. But I think it was a massive success. The one thing in common I heard over and over and over again from mostly moms, but not only moms, was that it was dramatically reducing the stress in their households.
2: Of course, the, the converse of that is, is not so encouraging. When the monthly payments lapsed in, in January, as you might have seen from scholars at Columbia, they estimate that the number of kids in poverty probably went back up considerably, maybe by as much as 40% again. Why haven't the efforts to extend the policy beyond its, you know, temporary implementation succeeded? And what do you think the cost of that will be?
4: I think the cost is going to be enormous to our society and childhood poverty. Of course, the cost to the children is going to be huge, but the cost to the society, childhood poverty, costs us a trillion dollars a year. Columbia University also did a study early in all of this, and they they were estimating that the child tax credit would have an 8x return because of the money, instead of spending the money mitigating for the effects of childhood poverty you're actually reducing the effects of childhood poverty having been a school superintendent i don't need an economist to tell me that that's true i mean you could see it every single day in a school district where kids are not eating or not able to get extracurriculars that other kids have i mean there are all kinds of dimensions to this beyond that it's i think it's a huge cost to our democracy as well democracies cannot persist with the kind of income inequality that we have and the lack of economic mobility that we have forever. It is true that children have no lobbyists in Washington, D.C., and that may be one of the reasons why, you know, I've been there on the floor late at night when people are breaking their back at the end of the year before they go home for the holidays to make sure rich people's tax cuts are extended, to make sure tax cuts for the largest corporations are extended, when it, when it came to children living in this country, Washington just went home.
1: I don't think Senator Bennett's being totally fair on himself when he says his presidential campaign was totally unnoticed. I remember you writing a piece arguing that he had the best ideas of anyone in the Democratic field, uh, or actually in the Republican field for, for that matter. But um, perhaps it is right that his campaign was largely unnoticed outside policy circles. Charlotte, I think this is going to be an episode where you and I throw a bunch of questions that we want answered at Idris because this is really his special subject. So do you want to go first?
3: Sure. W- one of the things that... It's so striking reading Idris' piece this week and listening to his reporting with Senator Bennett. When you think about what Biden has actually achieved since he became president, this is a pretty big deal. And there are two things about it that are remarkable. One is that it had an enormous impact. And the other is that there's no support for sustaining it or very little support for sustaining it. And Idris, I thought it'd be helpful for me and for listeners if you could explain What happened before? What was the shape of the child tax credit before? What did the federal government do in this regard? And then how significant a departure was this policy?
2: So America has had a child tax credit that's been in effect for a while. And it had a maximum annual benefit level of $2,000. You had to file a tax return and you could get that much back, basically. And the new tax credits are... A bit more generous. So for, for most children, the annual amount would be $3,000. For young children, it would be $3,600. But uh, there were two innovations that I think made this an effective tool. The first is that these payments were made monthly. Um, so they didn't rely on Uh, an annual filing. And indeed, it went to families that didn't file their tax returns, which a lot of poor families don't. And so they they miss out on the money. And the second, which is a a technical point, but is an important one, is that uh, these payments were flat. So in the old regime, you had to have a minimum level of earnings in order to get The full payment um, for a family of one, depending on family size, might be something like $16,000. And you had to have accrued enough federal tax to actually get the money back. And what that design decision meant was that a lot of the poorest families were actually not getting the credit at all, or were getting only partial credit. Which meant that, you know, for example, half of Black and Hispanic children were not getting the full credit, even though it existed on the books, and, and America was actually spending, you know, close to two hundred billion dollars um, on it. And because, you know, the the paradox is that families are too poor to get the child tax credit. In effect, the potential that this policy had to limit income poverty among kids was was attenuated. Basically, the the reason that these expanded credits worked where the other one didn't was. Not only that they were a bit more generous, but they also were better targeted to families at the bottom of the income distribution, which is where you need the money to go in order to really reduce uh, childhood poverty.
1: Idris, if you think of all the things that Biden has done and the various impact of those things, it's hard to think of a single policy that has had so much impact and yet is so little known, I think, in America. And that you know, even in the Democratic Party, people seem to have just somehow kind of taken for granted you know, they haven't necessarily celebrated its success in a way that might have built some political support for, for keeping it going or, or making it permanent. And I, I guess another thing that's striking is that often we associate the federal government with really clunky implementation of new policy programs, right? I mean, that was particularly the case with Obamacare, but not only. And yet, from your reporting, the implementation of this one went really well, which is a surprise. We don't often talk about things, big new projects that the federal government has undertaken going smoothly.
2: Yeah, the the IRS managed to, within three months, start making monthly payments. And basically, a tax enforcement agency became a a welfare agency of sorts. Um, And you know, the implementation, given that reality was uh, was relatively smooth. and um, this achievement got lost amid all the other things that they wanted to do. And because their legislative agenda floundered, people have the perception that they haven't done um, very much good for for the country when in fact, I think that some of the accomplishments that they did have, they didn't really pause to to crow about as much as they might have. And uh, we'll we'll get to the politics of this I, I think a bit later. But uh, I also think that you know some of the success was lost amid fear of inflation and too much spending and, and all the other things. And so this, this just got lost amid, amid the, the hail of that.
1: We'll find out how the child tax credit changed the lives of some families in the Bronx in a moment. But first, thanks for choosing to listen to Checks and Balance. If you like us, I think you'll really like an Economist subscription if you don't have one already – Not only will you be able to read Idris's piece on child poverty in America and the child tax credit, you'll also have unlimited access to all of our journalism. Our editor-in-chief, Zani, and our Russia editor, Arkady, were in Kiev last week interviewing President Vladimir Zelensky in his bunker. You'll be able to hear that interview on The Economist Asks podcast. Charlotte and Idris, what else did you like from this week's weekly edition or from the podcasts?
3: I thought that Alexandra Sewage Bass's special report on Florida, a special report being a 10-page in-depth look at all aspects of a given topic, I thought that it was really excellent and helped provide a window into a number of really big challenges facing America, both politically and in terms of policy. I just thought it was a fascinating look into one state as a way to understand America more broadly.
1: Yeah, it's a great piece. And Florida is a subject that I think we'll be discussing on next week's podcast with Alexandra. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. We wanted to find out what difference the expanded child tax credit has made to families and how things have changed since it expired. So, we sent our correspondent Stevie Hertz to visit a charity handing out food packages in New York.
5: So, right now they're getting one whole chicken, and then they're getting a decent amount, like a handful of fresh potatoes. We have apples, carrots, we got peppers, we got tomatoes. I mean, Maria
0: Cintron runs the Hope Line, a small local food bank in the Bronx. Dish. Squeezing between the boxes of vegetables and tins, she tells me they think really carefully about the food they offer.
5: And then we also want to give them shelf-stabled food because the fresh produce is great, but obviously we work with families who live in shelters as well. They can't always have food in a fridge, they can't even prep food, so we want to give shelf stable food. The
0: Hopeline gives their packages of food to about 1,200 families every month. And they also give diapers to 650 kids.
5: Basically, we give out free diapers to our families in need because when there is hunger, there's also other needs for other basic necessities.
0: There are government schemes that aim to help families out, but many don't cover diapers, which can cost around $100 a month.
5: So we're in the South Bronx, one of the poorest congressional districts, and basically our clients, I mean, it's a mix of families and individuals who are just struggling to get by on a day-to-day Sadly, our clientele right now have reported about almost 70% of them as unemployed. So it's a a good mix of people who are just trying to work, get by, and just manage, take care
0: of their children and take care of their family. The Line is run out of a storefront, right underneath the 5 train, which rattles past every few minutes. We're only 30 minutes away from the corporate offices of Midtown Manhattan. But here there's a dollar discount store, a car stereo shop, and an accident lawyer who's seen better days. Runuka Mahajan has travelled an hour from another borough to get here.
3: I get uh, good food for my baby, like fruits, vegetables, applesauce, and diaper too. That's the best requirement, basic thing for my babies. Only my husband is working, so I have to take care of my two babies.
0: Last year, the expanded child tax credit helped too but for additional things, like karate lessons for her 11-year-old.
3: I can invest some funds uh, to my baby, like for extra activities sometimes, and whatever they need, I can use them. That helps a lot, for especially for the minimum
5: income people like me. They made a lot of difference, actually, a lot. It helped a lot with my household, um, to
0: anything, clothing, laundry,
5: I spend it on really uh, household necessities, a new TV, <laughs> and stuff like that.
0: A tiny woman in a huge fur parka, Christine Ramirez waits in line. She kept coming to food banks even as she received the extra money from the government for her eight and nine-year-olds.
5: I was still going, um, I needed the help still, you know, because I've also had bills, you know, and stuff like that, that I had to also pay.
0: Without the monthly payments, things have gotten harder.
5: Now if I owe anything, I have to really take my time, you know. <laughs> Or, you know,
0: anything for the kids too. So, you know, I think that money really helped a lot of people. As the expanded child tax credit came in, Maria from the Hopeline didn't see a huge drop-off in clients needing her help.
5: I think it did relieve that, that stress for them, thankfully. And so they would still rely on us and still depend on our services. They wanted that extra money to be able to take care of their children and their family in a different way.
0: Because it came regularly, not just as a lump sum at the end of the year, and unlike food stamps could be spent on anything, the child tax credit really lent itself to that kind of flexibility.
5: So having a monthly boost just made the world of a difference for each family because then every month they were able to actually budget that money, catering to that month's needs. Because sometimes it is hard to look forward and to look ahead a
0: few months. So it's a shame that they have decided to cut that out and I, I hope that they continue it. Stephanie Arconto has two babies, a one-year-old and a five-month-old. Back when she received the monthly child tax credit, she spent it on diapers, and she was able to stop coming to food pantries. It's her first visit here.
5: So I got um, baby formula,
0: a blanket, diapers, wipes for my babies, and food. What, what food do you think your kids are gonna be most excited by? Well, my kids love fruit. What's your kid's favorite fruit? Bananas. Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in for
1: a good day. <laughs> yes, they are. Idris, before we talk a bit more about the effect that the child tax credit had on the lives of American families at the bottom of the income ladder... Can you tell us a bit more about poverty measurements? I mean, we've asserted already that America ranks poorly when it comes to the share of children living in poverty compared with other rich world countries. How do we know that? What are the best measures? Can you give us a user's guide?
2: Yeah, well, we, we could talk about it for an hour if, if if you wanted to get through all the complications. But uh, when, we, when we talk about international comparisons, what we're most often using is a measure from the OECD which um, is post-tax and transfer. So it takes into account all the things that the welfare state does in terms of you know, tax credits and payments for housing and, and food, etc. It uses a relative standard. So it, it says that after all of the welfare state has done its thing, what share of people live below 50% of median income? And the reason it does that is that an absolute standard would be somewhat unworkable between countries with different standards of living. When we talk about poverty rates in America itself, um, the official governmental statistic is released on an annual basis and has some limitations. It it dates back to the 1950s, and it misses uh, some forms of of federal governmental support. So the third measure that um, is the one that's used by scholars is something called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which is a bit more comprehensive and tries to account for differences in standard of living. So the, the federal measure is is constant in New York City and, you know, Mississippi, whereas obviously you need more money to live in New York City than you do in Mississippi. And the numbers that we've been talking about, the month-to-month numbers, are based on estimates from researchers at Columbia University who, rather than wait 20 months for the federal government to release their annual statistics, are using survey data to come up with estimates for what the monthly number might be. So it's a good, almost real-time indicator. It lets us look at what the effect of this policy is rather than us, you know, having to do this episode in three years' time um, and say, remember that thing that happened in 2021? Did it actually work? I
3: wonder, Adrice, if you could set the child poverty measures in the context of other things that America does to try to help the poor. And is there a reason why beyond a moral one, that we should care more about this type of program? Is it because it has a bigger effect on uh, social mobility, on income inequality, on health outcomes? What's the evidence about knock-on effects
2: more broadly? There's a really great paper by two economists, Nathaniel Hendren and Ben Sprunkheiser, which evaluated basically a cost-benefit analysis on all sorts of governmental spending, and what they find is that expenditures on kids just have enormous returns. If you think about not just child tax credits, but you know some of the programs like Head Start and Abecedarian, the sort of pre-K interventions that we see, you know, resulted in uh, higher rates of high school graduation, lower rates of incarceration, higher incomes, longer lives, these sorts of things once you think about what the returns can be you see that um investments in in kids or or payments for kids in the safety net are actually worth it you know and and the american welfare system is set up kind of in the opposite way it is extremely generous to elderly adults and and quite emaciated when it comes to kids. And it wasn't always that way. So before the war on poverty actually started, one of the books that helped launch it was The Other America by Michael Harrington. And he spends a lot of that book writing about the um, dismal state of elder poverty. The pension program wasn't that strong. There wasn't Medicare. And, you know, if you read it 55 years later, it seems a bit otherworldly. And the reason that Elder Poverty America isn't as high as it was then is not because you know people are much richer it's because the programs that exist these sort of universalist programs are really effective and there is not anything close to that that exists for kids at
1: the moment can i add one more point to that in how this fits into broader goals Because African-American children, Hispanic children, Native American children are disproportionately represented in those poverty statistics, anything you can do to bring down poverty generally in America – and this is a really effective thing you can do – will reduce poverty disproportionately among those groups. And so this is also a policy that narrows racial disparities in a really meaningful way without having to target particular groups in a way that is politically, you know, unpopular in America and, you know, in practice difficult to administer. So it also fits really well into that broader goal. All right, let's leave it there for the moment. We'll be back shortly to talk about what could be next for anti-poverty policy in the U.S. So Idris, as Michael Bennett was the originator of this policy, you're going to take us back to your conversation with him.
2: Yeah, I I wanted to contrast the relative success of the policy in terms of its stated goals and its political fortunes, which I think were quite a bit worse. And I wanted to get his sense of why the messaging
4: was frankly quite bad in the hail of COVID and the hail of everything that's been going on it's hard for people to to understand even where the child tax credit was coming from what it was you know the fact that it was expiring or not expiring what they could do to help keep it i mean i have no doubt that ultimately we're going to end up making this permanent policy in the united states i have some hope even that that will be bipartisan. My friend Mitt Romney has a version of the bill that's very similar to mine, except for the pay-fors, which are different. And we gotta keep plugging away. I mean, I'll say the good news is, we saw that that it worked for six months, you know? And what, what was theoretical is no longer theoretical. And we saw that it did the things that I said it would do, and on top of that, it's very clear that it did not disincentivize people from working. And that's data that we had from other countries, but now we've got it from six months in the United States. Looking forward,
2: where do you see a permanent extension or a longer extension of this policy coming from? Do you see it in a bipartisan deal struck with Senator Romney or something else?
4: I haven't given up on the idea that we could somehow get it done during reconciliation, even though I have not persuaded uh, Joe Manchin of the wisdom of this policy, and I wish that he he doesn't have to take it on faith anymore. We've got six months of data. We've got other data that has come out since we first had the debate that shows either there's no effect on work or there's a benefit to people being able to work. I think in the long run, it probably will be working with Mitt Romney and others, Sherrod Brown and and, and others, to... Get it over the finish line here, uh, for, and and to make it permanent. That's another thing, I guess, is we're saying. I I've had conversations with my colleagues, including Manchin, you know, who had originally. I, I at least had understood that he was accepting this for a year. That turned out later not to be true, or or there was some confusion or mistake about that. But I said to him at the time, Joe, look, I. You know, he's saying, "Look, if you're going to have this, you should pay for it." I'm happy to pay for it. I mean, and I, I would say, let's extend it for ten years and let's pay for it. And I can't think of anything we could do that would make more of a return on our investment than this. And in my mind, our goal should be to end childhood poverty in the
2: United States. Nonetheless, if I if I caught you correctly, you you retain your optimism.
4: I do. I do. I think this is the. I obviously am biased, and I'll but. That that six months was the most successful domestic policy initiative in generations in this country. I think, ultimately, we're going to create a set of tax policies in this country that recognizes that we've got a different kind of economy right now, and that none of us was really sent here to Washington to, to create more income inequality in this country. And meanwhile, the really unfortunate part of this, from my perspective, the really unfortunate part of this is that every day the kids that are going to school all over America, just like the kids that were in the Denver Public Schools when I was there, by and large, they're trying to do their best. You know, they are trying to do their best. And we wouldn't give them just a little bit of help in trying to do that. We made their lives harder. They're working really hard. They're working really hard. But when you look at the lack of access to early childhood education and the lack of quality in our K-12 system, especially for kids, living in poverty and the incredible expense of higher education, you take all that together and, and it is not too much to say. In fact, it is true that our education system is reinforcing the income inequality that we have. We can't maroon the children of the United States of America. It is going to come back
1: to haunt us. Idris, there are a few things that I find striking about this policy. One, how effective it was. Two, how quickly it's been ditched. Three, how little parts of the Democratic Party, at least, talked about the success. I mean, I think not in Senator Bennett's bit of the party, which is really slap in the middle or maybe to the right of some of his colleagues in the Democratic Party. But it feels like on the left of the party, the rhetoric was, you know, since Joe Biden came in, has always been about how not enough is being done and how... No, they're not making any huge dents on injustice in America. Whereas actually, it would have been far better if people had celebrated this success and underlined it. And perhaps then there might have be been more political momentum behind keeping it in place. But that seems to have fallen by the wayside a bit.
2: Yeah, I think that's because there were just shinier objects that uh, the progressives were, were looking for. I think that they really thought that they had the opportunity to get um, nearly everything they wanted um, in short order because they had majorities in the Senate and, and the House, and they had the White House, obviously. And, uh, you know, the clear political focus was on um, all the things that uh, that they wanted, you know, these massive uh, climate um, spending initiatives, um, changes to healthcare, changes to the safety net writ large, um, such that they... They never really stepped back and examined quite how well this was working, and and part of that was um, you know the fact that a lot else that was passed in the American Rescue Plan, you know, I, I think wasn't as successful. You know, a lot of spending, a lot of money was given to states that didn't really need it. Um, inflation quickly became the big issue, so big spending initiatives didn't didn't look so so good after all. Um, but you know, given that. The Democratic Party spent so much time setting these enormous expectations for itself and its focus was entirely on on the future when that didn't happen. When Manchin said, um, no, I'm not going to support this, Um, not only did it capsize uh, their plans, but I think it also it also showed the limitations of their of their strategy, because now I think it's a little bit a little bit late for them to be to be crowing about it.
3: Idris, talk a little bit about the polling on this, because there is actually support, right, among Americans for this program. It's just not as popular as some other programs, and older Americans in particular are skeptical of it, right? I mean, it seems to be this perception that there's a fixed pie and people really want to defend their piece of it. And so the idea of expanding this program feels like a challenge to the existing ones that remain.
2: I've seen polling, actually, that seems pretty dependent on how you phrase the question. So if you frame it as a middle class tax cut, it tends to tends to do pretty well. If you frame it as an anti-poverty measure for kids, I, I think actually it does a little bit less well because people don't see that as 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 a particularly um, you know important goal next next to all the rest. But the fact that public opinion is so dependent on on phrasing suggests to me that this is not a very high salience issue. Um, most Americans are not that aware of it. They aren't thinking very much about it, which I think suggests that that the messaging on this has been has been very poor. You know, it's not been a central focus um, of the White House, and as a result, I think many Democrats even are not aware that uh, that the program was in place, that it that it worked as as intended, and um, you know, I think that, that has hindered. Its ability to persist. So so the, the reason this didn't get extended was because it was part of the Build Back Better agenda that was supposed to sort of transform America. And when that went down, so did the prospects of, of this. And uh, now Democrats are picking up the pieces and trying to find which components um, of their agenda they can get through. Um, and that is forcing the prioritization game that really should have started many months ago, but that they're now having to do in earnest. Um, and I'm, I'm not particularly confident that they will pick this one amid all the others, um, and actually go for it, particularly since Senator Manchin um, seems to have become a bit more queasy about the policy in the first place.
1: So Idris, given where we are now, what do you think can be rescued from this experiment? I mean, it feels tantalizing, right? It's really seldom that in public policy, you get to try something on this scale, you see it works. And it's so frustrating to have it whisked away. But that seems to be the world we're in. What's the kind of second best option here that seems viable politically?
2: So, you know, Senator Bennett alluded to this, but but Mitt Romney has put out a proposal which is fairly similar in in construction and actually does some things, I think, a bit better and make the payments come from the Social Security Administration rather than the IRS. But it would be paid for. Um, You know, Democrats could consider that. But uh, the the real person they have to convince is Joe Manchin, who has said um, at various points that um, you know he thinks that there ought to be a work requirement on this. That uh, uh, it needs it needs to be means tested to only go to families that are uh, making less than sixty thousand dollars a year. If the outcome you're judging this by is its anti-poverty effect, the sixty thousand dollar amount is 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 doable. The work requirement would substantially curtail the the effect. Um, that's not just because people are, are not going to work, but it's because um, of the filing requirements and, and these sorts of things that make it more difficult. Now, you know, if he's not going to move, he's not going to move, and and something is better than nothing. You can fix. You know, earlier I mentioned the issue where the design of the old child tax credit meant that poor families weren't getting the full amount. Um, There are sort of technical fixes that you can make to that, which um, reduce the cost of the policy, but also make sure that more of the kids who most desperately need it are getting it. Um, And that's something that might be amenable, that that Joe Manchin might be amenable to. Um, But getting there, I think will require the administration to make this a priority. Um, and I don't know that it will be amidst all the other things that they need to do. And the fact that the midterms are now fairly close, at least in Washington terms, and senators and representatives are becoming anxious and are, you know, their 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 attention is going to be
1: turned. Okay, Idris, well, we'll cross our fingers and hope that something more permanent emerges from that political settlement. Before I let you guys go, I have a quiz. America's lowest ever child poverty rate was under President Lyndon Johnson, just 14% in 1969. But in October 1970, The Economist wrote that LBJ's widely proclaimed war on poverty had proved to be little more than a skirmish. Johnson had appointed Sergeant Shriver, brother-in-law of the late JFK and one of the founders of the Peace Corps, to lead the war on poverty. My first question for you, Shriver once ran unsuccessfully for vice president. In what year, And whose running mate was he?
0: Mm.
3: (laughs) Just deafening silence. Um,
2: I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't
3: have been. Sorry, I don't know. I have no idea.
2: Can I just take a take a guess? Take a wild guess. Okay, fifty-two. Hubert Humphrey.
3: That seems too early, but I don't know. Too early. I don't have anything better. Tell us, John.
1: You are right, Charlotte. 20 years too early. It was 1972 with George McGovern. Ah. McGovern and Shriver lost spectacularly to Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew after the progressive Democrats were tarred with the counter slogan, acid amnesty and abortion for all. That was also an election where a lot of Democrats of the sort of Bill Clinton era um, cut their teeth campaigning and concluded that it was a mistake to ever try and campaign to the left of the American people. Um, And that gave you some of the sort of third way democratic movement that came along in the 90s. Anyway, question two. One of President Johnson's lesser known contributions was to proclaim the third Sunday in June as Father's Day. Who is the oldest living presidential child, i.e. child of a president? And of what state was she First Lady? Hmm. These are super tricky, I've got to say. If you can get, you know, if you get either of them, you uh, get double points. Mm Mm-mm. Oldest living presidential child.
3: Was it one of Truman's children?
1: Idris, do you want to have a go? Um, My clue to you is that she shares her father's initials.
3: Is it one of FDR's children?
1: It is, in fact, one of LBJ's children, his eldest daughter, Linda Bird Johnson, who is named after LBJ and his wife, Lady Bird, who was first and later second lady of Virginia because she was married to that state's governor, Chuck Robb. So if anyone listening at home got that, then please give yourself a high five, because I think that was a a harder quiz than, than we usually give. Idris, it's good to know that you're mortal when it comes to quizzes, or perhaps you're just a little worse aware after your week of wedding festivities.
3: I don't think so. I think that was right in line with our usual skill level required.
1: (laughs) Well, we tied. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our producers, Harriet Noble, Stevie Hertz, and Amika Nolan, and to our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.